Let's stand together, take up God's word, turning to John's gospel, in the 16th chapter, John 16, and we begin in verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do magnify your name, that you are God who has spoken. You have spoken in your law. You have spoken in the scriptures. You have spoken in your Son. We thank you for the timeless, enduring word of our God. We thank you, Lord, that you have appointed even the foolishness of preaching, that frail and sinful men should be given gifts from Christ and are given as gifts to your church to stand before your people and proclaim to them and to the world the truth of the living God, a message of hope for those who believe, but also a message of judgment for those who remain in their iniquity. O oh Lord God, bless your gospel to go forth and to bring in a harvest that you would gather from the fields wide into harvest those appointed for salvation. To that end, Lord, raise up workers to go. Bless us now as we hear your word. Christ be magnified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the final portion of Jesus' farewell discourse, or as I've referred to it often, the, the discourse in the upper room as they've gathered for the keeping of the, the last Passover, uh, as they've gathered and the Lord has instituted uh, the the meal, the fellowship meal, the sacramental meal of the new covenant, even the Lord's Supper that the church continues to give, uh, to, to keep to this day. And in this discord, Jesus, uh, discourse, Jesus must give them hard, yes, even hurtful words. Trouble lies ahead. As we've heard, persecution awaits them because they belong to him. Persecution even unto death for some. But then Jesus ministers comforting words to his beloved disciples. The remainder of chapter 16 is filled with words of comfort. That's not original with me. I don't remember exactly who, but uh, someone has pointed out there seems to be five sections in this remaining portion of chapter 16. These five sections of comfort. First, the promise of the coming helper. Secondly, the promise that he would see them again after the resurrection. Remember, he had said he was going away for a little while, and they would see him again, then he's going away to the Father. Third, the promise that he would secure the way for their prayers to be heard and answered, even as he will be seated at the right hand of the Father, our high priest making intercession for us. The fourth is the promise that he would soon return to the Father. That reality, he was going to the Father, and that's something of what we find here, the necessity of his returning to the Father. And then fifthly, the fifth promise is that no matter what the troubles that they would meet within this world, they were assured of peace because of his victory over sin, death, and the grave. The final accomplishment of the crushing of the head of the serpent with his own foot. We should notice that the promise of the helper surrounds this message of persecution. We uh, heard the first announcement of this promise at the tail end of chapter 15. And then chapter 16 opens with the certainty of persecution and suffering. And then we return to the reality of Jesus speaking of the coming, the spirit of truth, the one who would come as a helper, a comforter, the paraclete. In this passage, Jesus teaches significant truth about this person and his work. And that will be our focus this morning. The work of the Holy Spirit is anchored in and grows out of the completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that becomes central to what we see here in this text. This work of the Holy Spirit then takes place in two spheres, in the world and in the church. This morning, we'll be focused on the work of the Holy Spirit 
in the world. That's our main theme. But before we do that, it's necessary that we uh, come to understand verses 5 through 7. And so if you look in your worship guide, you will see four points. I've added a fifth point at the front of that. And so our points will be the necessity of Jesus' departure. The necessity of Jesus' departure. And then we have, in succession, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of righteousness. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of judgment. We will deal with those three specifics uh, in a quicker order. We'll spend the bulk of our time on the first and the second points and then how the other three flow out of it. So we begin with the necessity of Jesus' departure. As I've mentioned, this is really in verses 5 through 7. Jesus teaches that it is necessary for him to go away so that he can send the Holy Spirit. The disciples probably wanted to know why. Perhaps that's a question we have. Why did he have to go away in order for him to be able to send the Holy Spirit? Well, verse 5 tells them once more that he's going away to him who sent him. And, of course, that means that he's returning to the Father. He's going back where he has come from. And if you remember, John 3, 16, there... The conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus that God the Father so loved the world that He gave, He sent His Son. That the Son is God the Son, come in the flesh, God incarnate. He came down from heaven. He came to dwell amongst men. He took to Himself our humanity that He could be our Redeemer. He's unique. There's none other like Him. But now it has come to the point that it's necessary for Him to return to the Father. Before we get to the answering of the question of why it was necessary, there's a couple of other things that we must deal with. Look again at verse 5. But now I am going away to him who sent me, and he might uh, put it, and yet none of you ask me, where are you going? <clears throat> it's a plural, none of y'all, not, not any one of them are asking him. Notice again that we pointed out after Peter was uh, rebuked of his boldness and told that he would deny the Lord. Peter's been silent. It would seem like uh, Peter had not been humbled, as he is in the process of being humbled, that at this point he would have said something, right? He would, he would add a question. He would ask the obvious question, but why? Why is it that you're going away? In this passage, Jesus is rebuking his disciples for not asking the question where he is going, for not probing further back in John 13, verse 36, Peter did ask the question, but Lord, where are you going? And then later on, Thomas, in verse 5 of chapter 14, says pretty much the same thing. And these questions are are founded in a, a crude, literal concept of Jesus going away. You know, For them, they're thinking, well, is he leaving this country to go to some other country? Uh, really, because of the limitations of our humanity and the effects of the fall, they cannot comprehend what Jesus is speaking of. And thus, they don't ask the question, and, and thus he will speak to them. Jesus does give them a, a fuller explanation in the opening of chapter 14. That he's going to prepare a place for them, and that if he goes to prepare a place for them, he will come from there again to gather him to them to himself, that where he is, they may be also. So Jesus has made it clear he's not going to some other place on earth. But you see there's still some ambiguity. There's there's not a clarity, and yet they've not asked him. And and the fact that Jesus rebukes them would say that they should have asked. They should have been more interested in where he's going and what he's going to do. Well, surely he's going to the Father. And this truth should have filled them with joy. And in this context that he adds then, he would send another helper. Indeed, he has been their helper, but he is going to send another helper, even the Holy Spirit. William Hendrickson, uh, my favorite Dutch commentator on the New Testament, points out that this was the right time for the disciples to ask more questions like when, what his returning to the Father would mean for him, as in Christ, and then for them. But they had no questions. They didn't even ask for more information about the place he was going. He's, he said so little. It would it'd be as like you know, just a little bit to whet their appetite. They should have been filled with many, many questions about this place he's going. Uh, what are the things he's supposed to build? What, what's this mansion, this place he's going to build for them? But they've been silent. In this failure to ask questions, there's an element of selfishness. And that shouldn't surprise us. These men were of like nature with us. 
These men were so focused on what they were about to lose. Jesus is going away. They're so focused on that, and it fills them with sorrow, and they, they fail to think of anything else. As Hendrickson says, it crowded out every other consideration. Jesus, whom they've been with for three years, who they've walked with. At the end of every day, they've lied down wherever that place might have been, and they have rested through the night together. Jesus has been with them. And thus Jesus says, and yet none of y'all ask me where I am going. In verse 6, self-absorbed and overwhelmed, thinking of their loss, they thought of little else. Just pause for an important application here. Sometimes we find these applications along the way. Sorrow is mischievous when given into. These men are sorrowful. Uh, They've uh, given into that impulse. They've not made further inquiry. They've not asked obvious questions, really. And yet they've given into the sorrow, this missed opportunity to care for others. They're so focused on themselves, what they're losing. They don't even think about Jesus. And remember, there's a context. Jesus has been talking about his hour was coming, and now his hour had come. He told them that uh, the religious leaders, are they hate him. They're going to seize him. He's going to be put to death at the hands of the Gentiles. He's told them these things, and they're only thinking of their own loss. They're not thinking about what he is going to be faced with. It brings us to verse 7, then, with Jesus showing why he must leave. Notice, they have not asked, and yet, nevertheless, out of love and mercy, Jesus will tell them. He will answer that question for them. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Certainly, there's a whole sermon uh, to be preached on the reasons why why it was necessary for him to go away. But we're going to just consider a few of them here, and particularly why it was to their advantage for Jesus to go away. We'll come more to why the Holy Spirit could not come in just a moment. But why was it to their advantage that he go away? Think about this. Jesus, he is God the Son. And as God, he encompasses all. All of the vastness of creation is his. He He contains it. He sustains it. He rules over it in majesty and might. But in His humanity, it's like our humanity. It's a true humanity. A true human body and a reasonable human soul. He is restricted and He is limited to be in that one place at any one time. And by ascending to the Father and sending the Helper, the Spirit can come and He's able to be present in the whole world wherever God's people are found. And even to be at work in the ungodly in the world. The Holy Spirit being a spirit. But as Jesus remains on the earth in his human nature, he's limited to the place where he is. Jesus could not have been as effective as our high priest. Because he has, we would say from our perspective, he has ascended. He's telling them he's going to ascend. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father as our higher priest to ever make intercession for us. That's a remarkable reality. You think about that. God Almighty... At his right hand, he doesn't have a body like men. This is the condescension to our understanding. On the throne of God, next to the Father, is the Son in our humanity. It is a glorified humanity, but it is our humanity nonetheless. And he, as our great high priest, makes intercession to the Father for us. That intercession for the church is all the more effective because as our high priest, he is in the very presence of God making that intercession. Another consideration, if Jesus had remained, there would have been far less opportunities for the faith of the disciples to grow, for our faith to grow. Faith is that we don't see. It's the evidence of things hoped for, things wished for. And because he's present with them, we've already seen that Jesus has had to rebuke them for their little faith. But as we move into the book of Acts, what do we see? After his ascension, the Holy Spirit has come. These men begin to grow. Their faith grows. They become much more bold. They, they even stand before the Sanhedrin and they bear a witness to God. Whereas before, they were timid and frightened. Their faith has become more robust, robust because of his departure. They no longer can see him, but they walk by faith and not by sight. And their faith is exercised. 
You see that wonderful reality of a faith being exercised growing with a Syrophoenician woman who comes petitioning Jesus for her daughter who has an unclean spirit. And, and Jesus says, well, it's, you know, it's not for the, the dogs even, he says. The Gentile dogs, as the Jews referred to them, uh, that they should receive these things. But he's come for the sons of Abraham. And she says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs pick up the crumb from under the table. You see, she, she has faith. And she is uh, confident in that faith. And as Jesus presses her out of compassion and a love for her, her faith is growing. And she receives that which she desires. And so it is our faith grows through difficulties, through limitations, through hardships. And we see that in the scriptures. But let me just add one more thing. By the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples became more than twice the men they would have been. They grew in knowledge. They grew in faith. They grew in Hope. They grew in zeal and they grew in courage, as Luke's account in Acts of the Apostles bears out. So much more. The evidence of the Holy Spirit's coming. These are the benefits, just some of the benefits that have come. But why could these things have happened if Jesus stayed? Well, some of these is obvious, as I explained. You know, he was visible, physically present. You know, he could only be with him. He could only be with you know, a handful of disciples at any one time. Whereas now, the Spirit of Christ, as the Holy Spirit is called, is present with believers throughout all the world. Why couldn't have Jesus have done that before? I tell you, there's something of a mystery in answering this question completely. But we can certainly draw some answers out of the Scripture. But perhaps we will have more. God has not revealed all things to the sons of Abraham. There are certain things that are hidden to the secret counsel of our God. That he should be praised. That he should be worshipped as God. There is a, a mystery to him. But God has decreed, as we see in this text, God has decreed that the Spirit's coming was dependent upon Jesus going away. Particularly and firstly, going away as he would to the cross. His departing from his disciples, his going to the cross, the coming of the Spirit was dependent upon Jesus dying, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. You see, every one of us, every man, woman, boy, and girl, since Adam and Eve, all of their descendants, by ordinary generation, are sinners. And what does the scripture teach us about what we are apart from Christ? We are unrighteous. We are unclean. We are unholy. We are evil. We are depraved and incapable of doing any good. And our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are holy, holy, holy. Other unlike us. We have, God has no fellowship with sin. And so it was necessary for the problem of sin to be addressed in order for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit was able to come because the consequence of Jesus, uh, has, uh, the consequence of God's Son incarnation, His obedient living, His sacrificial and uh, substitutionary death and atonement on the cross and His resurrection. By this, Jesus who has opened the way, He who is the way. And Jesus has declared the truth, He who is the truth. And Jesus has purchased life for sinners with his death, even as he is the life. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I remember something from the Old Testament. I've not preached through um, the construction of the tabernacle. Lord willing, that's where we'll go next in the book of Exodus. But you remember that after Moses built the tabernacle, all the specificity, the, the particular articles of furniture and, and the clothing for the priest, uh, all of that laid out, the sacrifices, everything that was to be done, and yet these things were still common and was necessary before they could be used. Indeed, before God could even descend and fill the place with his glories, that Moses went and set them apart, the common unto the holy. He went in with blood and he put it on the horns of the altar and on the table of incense and the table of sacrifice for uh, the sofrad. All these things had to be concentrated, uh, consecrated, set apart as holy unto God. And then God in His Shekinah glory descended and filled that place so much so that the people had to draw back. It was unapproachable glory. 
is a picture, the reality of ourselves. Now, there's a bit of a mystery here. I'm going to explain it to you. Um, and I think it's because of what God has decreed that it's so. But we, too, must be set apart from the common to the holy. We're, we're unclean. As we said, we're, we're unwashed. We are depraved sinners. We need to be set apart. The sin and stain of our sin must be atoned. It must be removed. And only then can God descend and dwell within his people, even as the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus had to die and to shed his own blood to wash away our sin, to cleanse the stain, to pay the penalty, and to sanctify us. Now, it's true that the Holy Spirit comes to us as we are, unholy, and he brings the benefits of Christ to us. And he indeed comes in to the corrupt vessels that we are. But it is right and just that he should come because of the sacrifice of Christ. And thus bringing the, the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all our sins. To, to apply it to our hearts. Uh, the, the first work, either the work of regeneration, making us alive in the God and salvation. Purging us from sin. Granting us the gift of faith that we should call upon the name of the Lord. That we should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That was all only possible, could only occur if Jesus died. Now you think about the Old Testament saints who were converted long before the cross. How was it that the Holy Spirit went to them? And surely we must understand that they're saved in the same manner that we are. It's because of the certainty that Jesus was going to come. You remember how the scripture speaks of that he was crucified before the foundation of the earth. It's not that before the foundation Jesus was put up on a cross, but it was decreed in the covenant that God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit made. That was determined. It was set out. And so God could act and engage with the sons of Adam and Eve, and particularly the seed of Abraham, Abraham's seed, sons who believed God. You could do that because of the work that Christ would do. And yet, because of what Jesus says here, there is some restriction God has imposed on himself that the fullness of that Holy Spirit coming could not occur until Christ had accomplished his work on the cross. His going away, his going away to the cross and to the grave to suffer and die for sinners. The result of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was that the gospel then went to the tribes, to the nations, to the tongues. It was no longer limited and focused there in the nation of Israel, the sons of Abraham. This great outpouring resulted that even the Gentiles were converted. And this was God's plan all along. Remember again, that's such a familiar verse, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say that God so loved Abraham's sons. Certainly they're included in that. So Jesus had to open the way. He had to die to open the way for the Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit could not bring us salvation. It was not yet secure. But even as I've said, the reason he did before it being secured is because it was certain it would be secured. But there's still the transaction. That's what was secured. That was determined had to take place. Christ had to die. It couldn't just be forever and eternally. This, this, this commitment, this covenant that Christ would be crucified, the time had to come. And indeed, at the right time, as Paul writes in Galatians, and in the fullness of time, God set forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law, to die, to save sinners. It was necessary for Jesus to go away, even to the cross, in order for the helper to come to them. Can you bless God? For this so great a salvation. When you hear the work of Christ, when you consider that what He has accomplished, suffered in our place, shedding His blood to wash away our sins, dying the death that we deserve, can your heart, does your heart well up with joy and rejoicing? Are you grateful for what God has done? Do you exalt that Christ suffered and died and rose again and then ascended to the right hand of the Father and that He makes intercession for us? Does that thrill your soul? For it should. For the Spirit is the one who brings and applies this to our hearts so that from our heart we rejoice. But even in that, just consider again, He has gone to the Father. He's coming again. And saints of God, does your heart long for the return of Christ? 
do you look for and long to behold Him and to see Him as He is arrayed in glory? Well, Jesus has returned to the Father. He returned to the Father to open the way for the Holy Spirit to come. We will not look at the work of the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, the Holy Spirit's work in the church. We'll do that next week. But we're going to look at His work then in the world. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world. Because Jesus was going, Jesus then speaks of what the Holy Spirit will do. And in verse 8 He says, When He has come, that is the Holy Spirit, the Helper, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is a glorious message. But sinful men, women, boys and girls, they do not understand their need of Christ unless they are convicted by the Word and the Spirit of our need. Here Jesus speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we must be cautious that we don't twist His meaning. I've already touched on this, but as we think about it, the Holy Spirit was in all who have believed since the beginning. Remember when we were in Genesis and we looked there at the end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4 and we see Adam and Eve both make expressions of faith. They believed God. They believed His promise. And even as we find with Abraham, to believe God is to be accounted unto us as righteousness. They are of faith. And it was because of the Holy Spirit being at work in them, coming upon them, that Adam and Eve believed, that Abel believed, and Cain did not. All who have saving faith have the Holy Spirit. It is critical to understand. All who have saving faith have the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been as I were at one time in the charismatic church. And they, they teach an error here. Some not so much, but there's often an error that uh, you know, you're saved now. Now you need the Holy Spirit. My friends, if you are converted, you have the Holy Spirit. Because you're not a converted apart from the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not do the work of regeneration, or as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. We cannot do that for ourselves. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're converted, you have the Holy Spirit. It has been so from the beginning. And yet Jesus speaks of this work of conviction. Has the Holy Spirit always been at work convicting sinners? Certainly. But there's a shift coming with the completed work of Christ. Jesus is teaching His disciples that He's soon going to complete the work that the Father gave Him to do. He's been doing the work. He's been doing the works. He's been speaking the words of the Father. But He's going to complete that work. Even as He would cry out from the cross, it is, it is finished. And because that work is completed and He ascends to the right hand of the Father, then the Holy Spirit can be poured out in a far greater measure than ever before in all of human history. There's a mighty increase then to the influence and the power would be evidence Unlike any other time, this is what the prophet Joel foretold. And it is what took place at the day of Pentecost when the 120 were gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came down and filled the room and cloven tongues of fire representing, uh, giving a visual picture that the Holy Spirit had come and they're proclaiming the good news of the gospel in other tongues and languages and the people didn't marvel. And what is it Peter tells them in that sermon? He says, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies, prophecy of Joel. The Holy Spirit would come and your young men would dream dreams. And your, old, your old young men would, I'm confusing it. Old men would dream dreams and young men would prophesy. The Holy Spirit coming in great power. But He particularly comes to convict the world. Even if you think about Paul's letter to the Corinthians and he talks about the spiritual gifts and he's correcting the errors and the excesses of the Corinthian church, the, the main theme that we see is the gifts are given for two purposes. Either to edify and build up the church or to bear witness to the world, a convicting of the world. The whole span of the history recorded in the Old Testament, there are only very few Gentiles who are convicted and converted by the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about this and preparing the sermon. I was thinking of Naaman, the Syrian, the leper, the testimony of a servant girl, a Jewish servant girl in his household. He, he goes and God not only heals him of his leprosy, but gives him faith and he goes home as a worshiper of the covenant faithful Lord. 
or Rahab who heard the testimony of God's great works and bringing His people out of Egypt. And when they come to Jericho, she is a woman of faith and she too wants to be redeemed and has hope in Him. Or Ruth the Moabite, David's great-great-grandmother whom was in the land of Moab. And Naomi went with her family there and bore witness. I also think of probably Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Joseph's day, that he was a man of faith. Or Darius, whom Daniel bore witness to. And there's very few others. These are some of the ones that came to my mind, and perhaps we can think of a few more. But in the whole span of these thousands of years of human history, there's a record of very few who were converted, who were first convicted by the Holy Spirit and converted at that all change. And from this vantage point where Jesus is speaking, I, you know, I must go. I must return to the Father so that the Helper can come. And as He told Him, the time would come when the Spirit would come. And we read that in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit does come. And everything changes through the preaching of the Word by the disciples. The Holy Spirit accompanying that preached Word with the power to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see it unfold. And it continues to unfold. It continues to unfold today. The Holy Spirit is still doing this mighty work to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus does not speak of the results of this conviction that the Spirit brings in this passage. But we learn from many other places that that the results are twofold. For some, the result will be conversion unto life. Praise God. Be to the God who saves sinners. Sometimes, indeed many times, the work of conviction of the Holy Spirit results by the Holy Spirit of sinners being converted. You here this morning, you're a testimony to that reality that the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin. He opened your eyes to see Christ as your only hope. He gave you faith to look to Christ and you called upon the name of the Lord and you were, you were saved. That's one of the results the work of conviction of the Holy Spirit. The other one, it is a sober outcome. For others, it will be the result of a hardening of the heart unto everlasting punishment. There are those who have been in a worship service or some place where the Word of God was preached and they've heard it. Uh, they were convicted and for a moment perhaps they felt guilt or shame or the need for something, and they've walked away, and perhaps there's other occasions they become hardened, even as the Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, who God said, Moses, the prophet, the mighty prophet of God, uh, perhaps we could say the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, to him again and again with signs and wonders, convicted Pharaoh of his sin and of his iniquity and the falseness of his idols, humbled him and brought him low, and yet Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And God in His justice hardened Pharaoh's heart, working in the same bent that it already had. What is the way the Holy Spirit has worked in you? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you unto conversion? Or have you resisted the work of the Holy Spirit? And that convicting work of the Holy Spirit has resulted in the hardening of your heart Children, I want to address you particularly. My, how I love you, children. I love you so dearly. And I long to see every one of you stand before the throne of Christ as one redeemed. Amen. That the Holy Spirit will work in you to convict you of sin and of Christ to save you. That you would not Resist His work. That week by week that your heart would become more tender. That you hear the call of Christ. That you would not be indifferent and calloused and become hardened. Oh, that God would work to save you. That's one of the reasons I press the claims of Christ and the call of the gospel. Because have, we have little ones who God has promised to be a God unto them. Even as He has been to their parents. But you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. Do not resist the Holy Spirit who convicts. If you feel conviction for sin, children, flee to Christ by the simple prayer. God, help. Save me, O Christ. I'm a sinner. Have mercy and save me. And that will happen if the Holy Spirit is working in you. Do not resist Him.
Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to look at these three. We will be uh, fairly brief with them. We've spent the bulk of our time with these first two points. But the Holy Spirit, verse 9, comes to convict the world of sin. Notice in verse 8, he, uh, Jesus says to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And then he expands on it, of sin because they do not believe in me. And so we consider that. Uh, beginning with the apostles and then on through history of the church, Christians, Christian witnesses, remember that's the word martyr, are those um, who, and, I'm sorry, Christian witnesses, as we bear witness, and then those whom Christ has gifted uh, to be preachers and then given as gifts to the church, proclaim the gospel. We're either bearing witness, as we all should, or there are those who preach the gospel. And by this, the word is heard. And the Holy Spirit exposes the world to the reality of their sin. But also, it is through this conviction, ultimately, that the Lord, we pray, would lead to true repentance and saving faith. A genuine sorrow for the one great sin of unbelief is the critical thing. Notice that he says, of sin, because they do not believe in me. For this is the essence of all sin. You wrap it all up into one. All the sins that we commit, uh, we, they're, they're because we do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as those who are converted, when we sin, we're acting like practical atheists. We're, we're acting as though God's not king, as though he's not looking on, and yet he reveals to us that he does. But particularly with the world, they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, this is the great sin. When Jesus teaches on the unforgivable sin, it is this, to spurn the Holy Spirit with unbelief. And you're guilty already. And you're condemned. And if you resist and remain in unbelief, there is no hope of salvation. There's no possibility of salvation apart from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. This is the chief sin that sends sinners, men, women, boys, and girls to hell. Because they don't believe in Him the Spirit does come to many. Um, he opens the eyes to see Christ as the only hope. The Holy Spirit draws and brings sinners to Christ for cleansing and pardon. And history shows that many multitudes have been convicted and converted. People of the world, people in the world have experienced this convicting of the Holy Spirit. They were once in their unbelief and God in his mercy gave them a new heart and a heart of faith. When the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit convicts. And as we heard at Pentecost, many will cry out, Men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? That's because the Holy Spirit is convicting. And yet we know there, there was a vast multitude there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And others walked away. And so it is. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. In general, the response of the world is disgust. They're disgusted with the message of the gospel. They're disgusted with Christ. They, uh, they may be patronizing. So he was, a, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. But there's still a manifestation of the heart of belief. They, they must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God come into the flesh. And so the church world remains in disgust and continues in their ongoing persecution of the church. They refuse to come and remain hardened in unbelief. Again, what is your response to the preaching of the gospel. If we're converted, we never grow weary hearing the gospel. You know, there's the, the one old hymn, tell me the old, old story. I love to hear it. it, it we, we, ne we never get tired of hearing that Jesus was crucified to save sinners. Uh, Jesus is God come in the flesh to, to redeem a people unto himself. It's just however it's told, whatever part of it's told, it's always good news. And we might hear a good joke, but you know, maybe on the fifth telling we're Tired of it, right? But the gospel is not like that. It's always good news. But for the world, when they hear it, they gnash their teeth. They seize and they strike out. They want to silence those who would proclaim the gospel through their testimony and through their leaving, living, even as Cain reached out and struck his brother Abel to silence the testimony of the gospel. Well, secondly, we see that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of righteousness. He cannot separate 
this, uh, the two parts of this um, statement from themselves. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. And this, this gets at the heart of why it was necessary for Jesus to go and only for the Holy Spirit to come. The most immediate fulfillment of this word was with the Jews. The Jews are only a few hours away from seizing Christ and going to Pilate and demanding that he be crucified. Now we think about that. Why was that? When we go to John 17 or John 19, we'll see that. I was taking look forward to that scene there after they seize Jesus. And what is it they say? We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And so it is, in the name of righteousness, they were going to crucify Jesus. You see that? By their standard, by their law, what they believed about the law and what they refused to believe about Christ, they in righteousness put him to death. The Spirit convicts them of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. There in their so-called righteousness, their man-centered righteousness, their works righteousness, them trying to maintain and support, prop up their political structure uh, under Rome in that place at the time, they believed they were righteous. In the name of righteousness, they crucified Jesus. They did not see Him as the Son of God as He claimed to be, even though all the evidences were there. To him, To them, He was an evildoer. There was one who he was one who blasphemed God, and indeed under the law as Moses gave it, such a one was to be put to death. But all the evidence proved clearly that he was the Son of God. They rejected this truth, and they believed a lie, and they made their claim that it was for righteousness' sake that he must die. And yet, through the crucifixion, Jesus was welcomed by the Father. Of judgment because the ruler, I'm sorry, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus, as after he laid down his life, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He carried blood into the, the temple of God. He brought blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Of course, we know he returned in the resurrection, but then 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father as he is even now. The cross of Christ was the pivotal moment. It was at the cross that Jesus gained the cross, crown. No cross, no crown, as somebody has once put it. The result was that the disciples could no longer see Him. They could no longer walk together with Him. We know in the garden that when He came and seized Him, they, they fled from Him. You find Peter and John you know, in the shadows, even going into the, the house of the high priest, but they're gone. And then at the foot of the cross, we, we hear of John, uh, John being present. Peter's still out overcome with emotion for denying the Lord. So it was that even the Jews, the religious leaders, they for righteousness sake, based on their righteousness, which was wickedness, they crucified the Lord. But what did the Father do? The Father placed His seal of approval on His Son so that in the resurrection, it was as though the Father declared with a thunderclap through the ages when Christ came forth from the tomb, Here is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the righteous one. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. The world, through the Jews then, declared Him unrighteous. And yet, going to the cross, He was obedient to the Father. And He was declared to be the righteous one. He alone, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It was because He was truly the righteous one that He could stand there. He could be taken into our room, into that place of suffering and of wrath and condemnation because He was righteous. So you see the great conflict, the great contrast between the world's standard of righteousness and God's. The result then of their condemnation of Him was the crushing of Satan's head and the delivering of God's people from sin. And he was victorious. Finally, we see the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of judgment. Satan is called the ruler of this world. Because of Adam's sin, he, he has seized this position 
you see that he has authority in this realm because when he takes Jesus, or when, not when he takes Jesus, but when Jesus is carried by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and faces the temptation, Satan comes offering him the nations because he's usurped and taken from Adam this position. He's the ruler of this world, as Scripture calls him. Jesus spoke of this back in chapter 12, verse 31, when he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. It's foretelling that great transaction, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that will take place at the cross. When the devil condemns Jesus, he, he, he did so through evil men who cooperated and colluded with him. Remember how he entered, Jesus, entered into Judas? The devil was in Judas. The devil was at work in others. And the religious leaders, the high priests, the, the elders of the people, the Sanhedrin. And they handed, uh, Judas betrayed him, handed Jesus over to the Jews. And by this, the, the devil is at work and he's condemning himself because he is at work with these men. They are condemned. He is condemned. Satan, Judas, and the Jews all sat in judgment of the righteous one. That astounding. There's a sense, you know, we go into court of law. You know, perhaps we're guilty, perhaps we're innocent, but we, we have a trial uh, by a jury of our peers. We're we're all sinners. We're we're of the same sort. You know, we have our flaws, our imperfections, our sins, our uh, secrets. But here is Jesus, the righteous one, and in judgment they condemned him. They condemned the only one, the Father. The only one that the Father commended. They condemned him and condemned him in judgment, the one whom the Father commended. And thus it will be on his sentence, that is Satan's sentence on the last day. John writes it in Revelation 20:10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it is this world through the Jews by listening to and embracing the lies of Satan. With their judgment, they condemn the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about it, the world is still condemning the Lord Jesus Christ as well. There are those, as I mentioned a moment ago, they're patronizing. He was a good teacher. He was a great prophet. Even the false religion of Islam says that. But there are others that are much more vehement. For them, the name of Jesus is a, an oath and a curse. They mock and they blaspheme, even unto this day. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict them for this. As we've heard already, for some, He will convict them, leading to life, to repentance and life. Bless God that He is a God of mercy, that He does not deal with sinners as their sins would deserve, that He saves even the worst sort of sinners. Think of Saul, who breathed out threats. You know, he thought he was honoring God and he was bringing judgment on God's people and yet God rescued and delivered him. The Holy Spirit will convict them even as he did Saul. And others, in that great day of the Lord, they'll be convicted leading unto eternal judgment. You see this fulfilled there on the day of Pentecost as Peter preached. They were convicted by the Spirit and Peter declared to them, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut in the heart. Here's that conviction. They were cut in the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Let me conclude with this theme. You see the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. He has come and he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Whenever the word of God is faithfully preached, the Holy Spirit is at work in the church, working upon those who are there, Convicting of sin, many leading unto life, others leading unto death. He comes to prevail upon those who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would believe. Remember, this is John's purpose. He said, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. With respect to righteousness, Jesus is the only righteous one. And God the Father has exalted Jesus, given him a name that is above every name. That every knee should bow and every tongue confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. With respect to the judgment, God the Son has passed judgment, the judgment of God on the devil. And even now he is bound and he will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire along with all who believe his lies. 
made reference just a moment ago to Acts 2 and Peter's preaching at Pentecost. It was after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where he will come again, that he has sent the Holy Spirit, who's filled the house and all who were in it. And it was in this context, Peter preached. And many were convicted. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Notice what he says. He says, you, by the hand of lawless men, crucified and killed him. They were convicted of God's righteousness, even though they thought they were doing what was righteous. Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the man approved by God. That's a capital M, the God-man, the Son of Man, approved by God, righteous concerning judgment. And God has seated him on his throne to judge the nations. That day many were cut and pricked into the heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Would that we would see the work of the Holy Spirit in our day. What does it begin with? How is it that we want the world to be saved? We long for people to be pricked, to be convicted, to be cut in the heart. It begins with us proclaiming the gospel. We must bear witness. That's what happened when persecution broke out in Jerusalem after the death of Stephen. The church was scattered out. The scripture says they went proclaiming. That's the proper translation. Went proclaiming. That is, that the average Christian went forth bearing witness to those they encountered this good news of the gospel that they believed. They were witnesses, martyrs unto the Lord. God pricked hearts and sinners were converted and the church was built up. Indeed, praise be to God that Christ has completed his work, ascended to the Father, and sent his Holy Spirit. For without him, we would all be lost. He brings the work of God to bear in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Father, we ask that you would bless us to hear these things, to meditate on these things, that our hearts would well up with joy and great rejoicing at the work that you have accomplished, that you have not left us to ourselves, you have not left us in our sin, but that you came by your Spirit to prick our hearts, to convict us of sin and of righteousness, to see the righteous one as he is. Lord, help us that we should set aside our own standards, that we'd receive and welcome the standard of the Word of God, that we would measure all things by no other standard but by the living truth, even Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.